0: Hi everyone, my name is Bree and I'm the VP External for the Creative Writing Club at the University of Alberta. Please note that we had some technical difficulties while recording the question period of this episode, so you may notice that there's some extra noise or static in the background. That being said, enjoy the episode. Let's give a big warm welcome to our guest, Nisha Patel. If you don't um, don't know who she is, she is Edmonton's poet laureate and Grand Slam champion, Canadian Slam champion. Uh, yeah,
1: the 2019 yeah. one every awesome. year. Awesome. I won the 2019, uh, 2019, Canadian Slam. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you for coming so much. I know you your time is very precious and all that. So we're very so we're very thankful you were able to make it and come to talk to us today. So I did kind of want to start with a few questions, um, of course, and then, of course, you can take them ever which way you which way you wish to. But kind of one of the burning questions that I've had on my mind is when did you start creating poetry and what sort of inspired you to get into that, get into that route of um, creativity?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a question that I get asked a lot um, because I didn't really take, I think, the usual route of like Mm -hmm. starting very young and then. Doing courses or anything like that. So, like I mentioned uh, earlier, this is my first time in my life taking university courses in writing, and I'm doing it kind of in an unofficial capacity. And so, I started writing poetry and performing it a little bit in 2014, but mostly in 2015. So, I've been doing it now uh, for for about five or six years. Um, but I switched over to kind of doing art and art related jobs full time in. 2018. So it was quite, quite a ways after that, uh, that I decided to kind of transition to an artistic career. I think I when I was younger, I had dabbled in in writing, and I settled on mostly writing fan fiction, I was like a young teen. And I, I even gave that up after a while, because it became very clear to me that like writing was something that very few people made money on. And so, like I said before, like, I I ended up not pursuing writing for a very long time. And it's interesting because it kind of just comes back to you. You know, it's like, it's like for the people who have the privilege of being able to do artistic things while still having security and safety. It was something that I started pursuing more and more in my free time. And even as I worked in other jobs and other careers, writing became the thing that made me the happiest, despite how stressful performing can be sometimes. And so I felt in 2017 and 2018, very compelled to go into arts full time. I had what I like to say was a promising career as like a political analyst, uh, which is something that I had wanted for many, many years. And then I, I really burnt out, I had some really significant mental health episodes, uh, ended up in the hospital. And after that, I decided that like, if I was gonna have kind of like a limited time on earth because of my illness, I wanted it to be focused on doing something that made me happy um, insofar as money was able to be sustained, you know? And so, yeah, I spent like that first year, I really burned through savings to to try to make it as an artist. And at the end of that year, I ended up getting a job in the arts at the poetry festival. So I was very lucky that I had la- I landed somewhere that immediately was so close to what I wanted to do full time, which is which is write and perform.
0: That's awesome. I, I love that story, for you. Other side question here too. Like, what what was it that led you to like the Edmonton Poetry Festival? And I always found it so such a compelling organization, just because like you reach not not only do you reach like the you know what I mean the artistic community in many ways, but like you're reaching. The whole community of Edmonton, though, too. So, yeah. like, do you find that there are a lot of a lot of people, even just outside of of, of the sort of poetic community, that you have sort of entered the poetry festival and, and they're like, oh my goodness, this is this is so amazing, right?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a very interesting kind of atmosphere uh, for many of you who are probably not as in- inundated within the artistic ecosystem. Uh, all the artistic festivals, especially the literary festivals or liter- literary adjacent festivals, festivals that include literary elements like poetry performance, but aren't necessarily full-time poetry or writing festivals, all of these people know each other. And we're often hiring the same performers or the same writing group and stuff like that. And so being in a position to work for the Edmonton Poetry Festival elevates you not as a not only as a poetry organizer, but also elevates your profile as a poet and your connections to other people in the artistic community. And what I found in my artistic practice, which isn't the same for all writers because they don't come from the same school of thought, is that like you can't write in isolation and you can't write without community. And so having the ability to go into a poetry like a poetry administration career early on in my writing was something that has benefited my entire practice because it's put me in a place to have access to the greater Edmonton writing community and also the visibility um, required to make it or make enough money to do this job right like under capitalism we have to create art that gets us enough income if we're going to do it full time and so at, at first I was like this is a big scary job and when I started out as a poet, I kind of dreamt of one day working for the festival. You know, I was like far in the future, you know, I could one day do something like that and do it very well. And I had run, you know, creative events and organizations all throughout university, um, often to the detriment of my grades and stuff like that. And so I felt like I was like, you know, very well prepared for it. I had also um, in my jobs uh, in municipal government run major events, you know, sometimes up to 10,000 people. And so running a festival seemed in comparison almost easy. And that first year, especially when I was, you know, working under someone else before I was the director, it was clear to me that I had skill sets that were completely aligned with the festival and that my personal practice was going to be useful for it too. And so I think that the position benefited me, but I also really brought something else to the position because I had spent so many years grinding at the low, like, you know, ground level of the community, you know, I came up at open mics and I came up at poetry slams and I lost some of them you know and I had bad poems and I went to these you know week after week of you know sessions where I would have to pay to get entry sometimes or I wasn't asked always to perform and stuff like that, where I would do gigs for free. And I did that for three years before I landed a job in the poetry community, right? So I think that, you know, it's very important to recognize that it, it wasn't something that just happened. It was something that like you really had to work for. And so, especially for for a lot of you guys, like creating community as you're doing right now with each other is incredibly important, but also being able to reach out within a city and within the communities that you live in, some of you will probably go on to like MFAs in other places and other postgrad degrees and stuff like that. But these programs, like the great benefit of them is that they put you in connection with other writers so that you don't just write in isolation. I feel like that model of being a successful writer is no longer valid, especially under capitalism and under a Canadian context.
0: Oh, absolutely. Um, even, I guess even that's that's definitely the philosophy of the creative writing club here is that, you know what I mean? You, it, it becomes a difficult process to improve yourself even just as a writer. If you don't, if you even don't have anybody that is even around to even either support or critique your work, mm-hmm. right? And make it's it, make
1: important. it Yeah, too. yeah, it's very important because um, one of the, one of the big myths, one of the big like things that I want to break down is like this idea that having other people, in competition with you is harmful to your success. When in reality, it is other writers and other artists who are going to get you the most writing opportunities, the most gigs, the most connections to well-paid work. You know, And being in competition with one another um, in ways that spur your own growth is gonna allow you to grow as a writer in ways that you can't do within just a classroom you know, and I think that's like a very important element of community that we hold each other accountable to our own success. Yeah,
0: for sure. Yeah. So like, you've definitely like participated in a lot of slam contests. I mean, you're the slam, cha- you're the slam champion for all we know. So I kind of wanted to ask, what is your relationship to spoken word or, or slam poetry compared to, as opposed to writing down your poetry?
1: Mm-hmm. So like all my poetry still has existence somewhere on my computer or in a notebook or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of my spoken, like all my spoken word is something that starts out um, as a conversation or as an idea on a page. I'm trying to adopt the title of just poet, not spoken word poet or Uh, Slam poet. I really hate slam poet because I spend more time just doing spoken word and performing than I do in a slam, right? Uh, You know, slams are just like a such such a small part of the whole picture of what it's like to be an artist. Um, And I don't say this to like make anyone feel bad. It's just for me personally, it is an Mm -hmm. ongoing understanding of myself. Like, what do I look like to myself? And so For me, it's really important to recognize that like spoken word as an art form in the way that it exists now comes from a black tradition of oral storytelling. And that storytelling tradition requires us to pay, you know, to to have due respect for those origins. And so it is different from what we do on the page sometimes, especially stuff that comes out of places like creative writing. It's its own distinct form of storytelling. Um, in the fact that it really commits itself to the oral aspect of of it, the drama of a poem, right, the performance of a poem, and as soon as you accept that it is its own kind of beast, you can commit to the refinement of that art form. And we're very lucky right now in Canada that there are some really great spoken word poets whose work is extremely accessible, either in video form or now we're getting like these spoken word poets are getting into publishing, and so. It has been really interesting to be a poet right now at a time where I think there is a resurgence of poetry, especially from marginalized voices, equity-seeking voices, right? People who have been oppressed and left out of the big conversation. And what we're seeing now, especially, is that many of these spoken word poets are community change agents. They're community activists. They're people who are speaking about stuff like racism and you know issues of gender nonconformity and you know trans rights and like all of these interesting things, mental health awareness and all of that, um, neurodivergency. And so I feel like spoken word is something that I I want to continue to engage with, but I also am trying to make the transition into being accepted in like the page poetry circles, you know, and so pursuing actual publishing and not just like video production is something that I've tried to wrap my head around a little bit more and so I feel like I'm coming at it a little bit backwards where I built up a reputation as a spoken word poet first and then after the fact decided to pursue publishing. But for a lot of us as spoken word poets who didn't come up in like academia, we don't have access to publishing and we don't even know about it early on in our careers because people don't consider our art form something that can be on the page. And what I'm finding is that with a very good editor, any poem on the page can come to life on stage.
0: Absolutely. Um, So like when it comes to sort of the opportunities and connections that you've been lucky enough to make um, in your career as a poet so far what would you really say were like the like besides the Edmonton um, Poetry Festival what would you really say what kinds of opportunities were the ones that really helped you really helped you discover the poetry community and helped you to really sort of solidify your own personal style?
1: Yeah I think it's It's interesting because if you want to be a good writer at poetry, you have to read really avidly. And if you want to be a good community engager and performer, you have to perform and go to events. And so not just like show up for the 10 minutes in which you're at a gig or you're doing the reading and then leave, but it's actually... The important part is like showing up and talking to organizers to be in a green room with other people who are performing to stay after the event is over and talk to people in the audience, you know, um, to sell merchandise and stuff like that all of these form touch points within the community that allows poetry to come to life in a human body right your body or in other people's bodies. Um, And that human connection is what cements your reputation as an artist and allows you to continue to create in a way that pushes what your authenticity and authentic voice actually is right you get to know yourself better once you are able to talk about your own work and so for you guys to be like a conversation club as well as a creative writing focus is very important because the more you are able to refine your own ideas and thoughts on an issue the better you'll be you'll be able to translate that into a poetic voice and into a poetic take on something that you want to write about
0: yeah I find that I find that such a such a cool thing right because I feel like when we read a lot of poetry right especially if you're reading some of the older greats <laughs> that are on that are published out there right you definitely certainly sense that the poet has a very internal internal sort of um, perspective on things right yeah especially There's since definitely- it's their, yeah. own for, sort of feeling, their own sort of feelings their own sort of experiences but it's so I find that I, I find it an interesting paradox but I also find it like almost reassuring aspect of poetry that it's not just something that that you just sort of experience alone but Mm -hmm. in a sense in that experience that internality it took that takes a community or or at least their interaction with the community in some way to form that right
1: you do have to at the end of the day you write the poem alone right like you have to be the mediator between your thoughts and the page and that's really important to recognize that poetry can be a very solitary poetry writing can be a very solitary activity and there's loneliness that comes with that um so i do feel um a little bit of sympathy for these poets who have a very internal process and then put books out in the world out into the world and never have a chance to talk to people about what they were doing but also some of them you know fuck those guys some of them like didn't think they have to right like old white men who publish book after book of poetry and expect people to buy it without them ever having to do stuff like PR or interviews or you know talk to their readers or who hold up things like appropriation in their writing and don't give a shit about like what what people feel about that or how opinions have changed on that um so Mm -hmm. obviously there's like a very wide spectrum here um there's also poets who don't want to talk to people who aren't good at that right and there's still space for that writing there's some poems maybe that don't have an oral element to them because they're visual poems you know and it's the story that goes into the into the visual part of the page that's most important and you do need to experience it on the page on the page rather than on the stage and so there's space for all of it poetry is so beautiful in that way because it is something that comes from you know, so many different traditions of art, and it encompasses so many of them. And I think that like people like us at the ground level are changing every time we write a poem are changing what the fabric of what poetry is, and what it can be.
0: Mm -hmm. No, I agree with you on that. For a young poet per se, that doesn't sort of really know what it is that they're, um, what direction it is that they are trying to go for in their poetry, whether or not they're whether or not they're wanting to focus on a certain style or focus on a certain level of reach in their career and all that, what would be the best advice that you could give to poets that are trying to establish that sense of footing in their their writing and in their community?
1: Yeah, I would say that uh, if you have opportunities to share your work, in a way that you can get feedback, either like from an audience clapping or from people who actually read it and give you critical feedback, Um, you need to take that opportunity um, as much as possible. And so coming up in a community that is both celebratory and critical for you is going to help you hone your voice in a way that allows you to really be an expert on your experience, right? And selling that truth and telling that truth is gonna be the most important thing that sets you apart as a poet. And so, you know, like, the most basic advice I can give is just, like, tell the truth in your poetry, right? Don't talk about other people's stories if they're not yours to tell. Talk about your experience, because you are an expert in what you do, you know, in, in who you are, and therefore that's the story you can best tell. And it's okay if there are elements of what other people have shared with you in your stories, because that's a part of who you are as well. And so I feel like You know, that's the that's the best advice I can give that as long as you stick to telling the truth um, and like being equitable in that sense, you know, fighting for justice and equity through your writing, um, through your truth telling, you bear witness to not only your own potential, but to other people's as well. Um, And putting aside time for stuff like feedback to your friends or um, going to open mics. And I know they're like virtual now or signing up to read at a festival or at another opportunity if there is a submission to put a poem in a newsletter like submit to these things they're not always going to be able to get back to you but some of them might give you feedback that could be very useful at the on the other hand you might get feedback you don't like and you don't have to listen to that you know so and the only way you're going to know which feedback you don't like is if you keep submitting and if you keep receiving feedback in the first place
0: what were the few things that like when you were first starting to get involved with them with the poetic community and getting your writing and your name out there, what were the things that that you felt that you had to proceed with a little bit of trepidation at first, right? Like what were this what were the sort of things that you kind of felt a little bit uneasy about per se? Yeah,
1: you know? in terms of like, I'll take this in two ways, but in terms of subjects, I struggle sometimes to talk about queerness in a public way. Um, just for safety reasons and like personal personal reasons about like coming out and not coming out and being like visibly queer and stuff like that that's been tough for me in terms of challenges and so I feel a little bit held back to talk about those issues also about uh, my mental illness and now my physical disability as well like these are things that I'm just starting to dive into you know six years into the game. Um, In terms of the ecosystem of poetry, the thing that has continued to be hard for me is coming up against uh, like the gatekeepers who hold opportunities so close to their to their persons that they refuse to let anyone else in. So these are like white publishing houses who talk to BIPOC authors as if they have nothing to contribute or, you know, publishing places that say oh we're going to have one Asian writer sorry like we can't have two people talking about the same thing Um, when in reality like the marginalization that happens to people who are racialized uh, is an active thing right there are gatekeepers all across the board Um, I'm looking into MFA programs right now and the UBC program for instance doesn't allow oral submissions at all right and a lot of spoken word poets who are getting to that point in their careers where they require attention and careful study are being excluded from almost every program if they can't have an oral submission and many of those spoken word poets are marginalized and racialized and queer and trans you know more so than the general population of poets might be and so i find that like whiteness and the way it manifests in the writing community has been an ongoing challenge also like i don't know what the makeup of your club is for people who come up in the system that benefits them they also recognize the barriers for other people they have an exclusive opportunity to be able to advocate for change within the system in a way that like i might not be able to and so for the fact that i didn't have access to formal writing to like mentorship um, for many years is a huge barrier for me and now like under a classroom setting where i actually am able to do it Based on my reputation, like I was able to get into a master's course because I had enough experience finally after five years as a poet to do that. It's very important for me to recognize that, like, this is again an opportunity where I can learn and pass it along to other people. And I feel that if poets in positions of privilege took that community oriented mentality more seriously, right? Consider themselves future mentors, then they would invest more in breaking down barriers for other people.
0: Yeah, for sure. So you think that path is definitely a part of destroying those barriers, or at least in some way, at least trying to overcome them? Or is there, or are there other ways have you felt that, have you felt that really have benefited you in at least trying to jump over those humps and and get ahead
1: in your work? I think it's interesting because what we're seeing more and more these days are, we're seeing that a lot of people in positions of privilege uh like magazines and stuff like that are starting to do more of the work to have equity for writers and some people kind of believe that the idea is that there are now just now a new crop of like marginalized racialized BIPOC writers who are coming up but the reality is that we've always existed and we have been excluded for dozens and dozens of years and the equity initiatives to get you know grants for marginalized people and stuff like that when money is set aside for us is a form I think of reparations rather than just extending the current opportunities right we're trying to get equity for the years that we missed out on things right And so it's important, especially for me to recognize that, like, although I have been privileged to be considered in these categories and have access to funds now, how many people who looked like me didn't have access when they should have, right? And so for me to benefit financially or opportunity-wise right now and have all these things come up... Is a testament to my resilience within, like a white oppressive system, but also to the effort that's being made by other people to be more equitable um, in the face of both historical action and future um, aspirations.
0: That's great to hear. As a poet myself, one of the things that I've found to be quite difficult, at least for me, is to get started, like on a poem and all that. So, what are the things that you find? In your life are the things that inspire you the most when it comes to at least getting started with writing.
1: Yeah, uh the thing that inspires most of my, the most of my poetry is probably anger. Um I see writing as a form of achieving justice and I consider my contribution to art uh an act of revolution and my place in the revolution as well. This is what I contribute to the world to make it a better place. Um, which took me a long time to come to that understanding and so like I write about the things I'm most passionate about and for many many years the thing that is at the forefront of my experience in my life is anger and so I write about you know feminism I write about sexism I write about my vagina and the way that people have oppressed me around it I write about all of these things that are frustrating to me because this is the way I I, uh, show resistance to them Um, and I do so in a way that is truthful to my experience but I also for the first time uh, this year like wrote a love poem you know and I'm starting to realize that like maybe I can write with gentleness maybe I can write with care and love and focus in on those emotions too so I think that although I like to joke that it's like anger, that's been the most motivating. I think it might just be the things that I'm most passionate about, right? To give in Mm -hmm. to that wave of emotion and write from that place. And for some people that is a very vulnerable place that they don't like going to, you know? And I say everyone's process is gonna be different. If you are like a fiction writer and you're writing like a novel that's like basically a marathon rather than a sprint, what motivates you is gonna be very different. And you might need to have a more concentrated writing practice. I, on the other hand, can have sit down at a desk five days in a row and have nothing to add to a poem and then have all the inspiration on Saturday. Whereas someone who's writing a book might sit down and do two pages a day, every day for a year. And honestly, like maybe the work that goes into being a poet looks a little different than the work that goes into being someone like a fiction writer. Um, but all of it comes down to like, what is my life? What have I experienced in my life that informs informs who I am and my values? And how can I write about them in a way that helps other people or that helps me clarify my own role in the world? So
0: do you think that that heightened level of emotion is something that is essential to a poet being like a poem being as successful?
1: Yeah, I think that. Honestly, like all of this comes to the grain of salt because you hear from you guys will be hearing from so many different poets in your semester and they're all going to have different opinions on it. But for me, the poems that I like come from positions of passion where you care deeply about the thing you're writing about and You know, I used to make fun of nature poems because a lot of white men went out to the woods and wrote about trees. I was like, I don't wanna read about fucking trees anymore. Um, But now as I'm getting older, I'm like, there is a very loving and caring way that people from any background can write about nature. And it's the passion that really sets them apart, right? Like, can you talk about Mm -hmm. something in a passionate way? Have you connected with a subject in a way that is insightful, that is different, that is uh, breaking the norm, right? And it's so beautiful because like people can go on the same hiking trail every day of the week and every day they're going to experience something different, right? Everyone eventually has something that they love, hopefully, and their experience of that love is going to be different. And so I think what makes a poem good is, you know, your commitment to that poem. And I think it's very easy to read a piece and recognize when someone has not put their whole self into a piece of writing. I think that's kind of one of the coolest
0: things about poetry is no two people can ever really see the same thing with the exact same perspective or same eye, at least from what I've encountered. One thing I do want to ask in terms of like being like, considering yourself as unique as a poet, I mean, we we come across so many sources of poetry and we absorb some things, we take some, we take some things and bring them into our own experiences and all that. So what was the what was the thing about um, reading poetry that made you made you realize how important your voice, your unique voice was?
1: I find that really good poetry inspires other people. And so I have to read a lot of really great poetry sometimes, especially when I'm stuck about a subject, Um, reading about it in someone else's poems, allows me to have you know, a buildup of ideas. It's the same as being able to have a conversation around a topic in the, and that would inspire me. Poetry on the page is a way for me to ha- to converse with the poet I wouldn't have access to. And like, I don't know if anyone saw, but the CBC Poetry Prize long list just came out, and I was a judge for that long list. So I uh, read about six hundred poems to make the top. we submitted like a top twenty, I believe. And so, that was also like an incredibly interesting experience because from this perspective of a juror it was very clear to me who was intimately aware of their subject right whether the subject was themselves or their love of something or you know their experience of something and those people who have an intimacy with with themselves are the ones who had the most successful poems you know, and many of those picks that I had made, you know, the top of the long list. And that was that was really important for me to see. And so like, I I don't know how to stress it enough that like, you must read other poetry and you or you must watch other poetry or listen to other poetry listen to the albums and you know take it in um, and there's so many things that are poetry right rap is poetry music is poetry you know take in as much of it as you can as as much as is safe for you um, and allow yourself to give in to something beyond imitation right so at first you might be like you know, I listened to this thing and I thought of writing this, but it sounds just like the thing I listened to. Um, But in reality, like the more you push that feeling of familiarity with something, the more you uncover your own voice.
0: I definitely agree that you can, you can tell when there are certain poems that seem to try to approach things from afar in an intellectual (laughs) manner and all that. But I've even coming, coming back to some of my poems that I've written in my early in my early years, I definitely felt that I took a lot more of an intellectual um, sort of high ground perspective. But I look at it and, and the thing is, though, too, is I can feel I can feel the disconnection when I go and go back and read those poems or mm-hmm. when I go back and read some certain poets, poets from the greats. Right. So, yeah, it's definitely a, like the thing about poetry that seems to have the most success and the most. And the most effect on people who read them are actually the things that I at least in my experience have, have been the things that we've been taught opposite opposite in our um, in our schooling years.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's tough because schools of thought change, right? And um, I would encourage like the places where you come up with resistance to an idea, like those are important places to explore. Uh, for you, and you might be wrong, I might be wrong, and your teacher might be wrong, any one of us could be wrong in this situation. And so it's important to, you know, understand, like, what is it that you are resisting in your writing, right? Um, I was questioned in class, like, why I write in all lowercase. And I'm like, I have just been doing it for so long that I don't even remember why I started doing it. You know, like I submit most of my poetry in lowercase. And it was like someone who is a student of creative writing who has just started on their poetry journey was like, oh, like, that's so interesting. Why do you do that? And I was like, I have no idea anymore. I don't even know what it does for my writing anymore. Um, Except for the fact that like, maybe if i thought about it i would have said something like oh it breaks down visual barriers but even then i don't know i have no clue and so things like things can change within your own writing as well
0: i know there certainly they just feel right you know what i mean
1: <laughs> yeah exactly it's kind of like you know getting into a groove and like it's interesting because in writing for a course versus writing for commissions like i usually do or writing for my books it's been very fascinating to be given assignments um that aren't necessarily all poetry and having to understand how you can have a poetic voice without having to call something poetry.
0: When it comes to working through your poetry and editing your poetry, um, all that, what is the like, what is the thing that you find is most important um, in that revision process?
1: Yeah, so the most important thing for me in revision is to revise out loud. And so this is where you guys having like a club or something comes in really handy, because you have an audience that you can share your writing with out loud. So this is literally you have to commit to the process of reciting things in front of people who might not like it, you know, and I I know Bree's in the room and to like see Bree do that the first few times i think last year where brie was like this is a new piece of writing i'm going to do it for the first time and then like having an entire audience applaud you is a feeling that is second to none right but at the same time you might go up and your friend might be like that was a terrible poem or i didn't understand this part and it's something that you thought you were coming across really well with and so um revision is exactly that right it's the it's the refinement of the voice and the refinement of an idea to the point where it inspires empathy in another person to see from your perspective. And so like, how do we build empathy in writing? Well, the only way you can do it is with other people. And so I think all revision should be done in like peer settings or out loud with yourself in conversation or out loud with a partner, someone who can give you critical feedback while still being kind um, enough to allow you to try to get to the intentions of your ideas as well as uh, the form.
0: That's definitely a very interesting, but I think it sounds like a very, um, it seems like a much, effect, much more effective form of re- revision too, right, than suppose it's just taking taking a bunch of drafts of your poem and then just writing on them and crossing crossing things out and throwing them out and going back but it seems like definitely being very community-based is something that something that sort of like can sort of bring out some flaws that you can sort of blind yourself to at least I mean that's that was the experience that I had when I first became a member of the creative writing club there were a lot of things that about my work, either like good things I didn't realize or things that I could have worked on better, but I would have never discovered those if I hadn't joined and became a part of that community.
1: For some people, community may be online, right? Like many people of maybe your generation and my generation have grown up with the internet and some of us have friends who exist in an online sphere, right? And so when I talk about community, it can be like an online writing community, it can be a forum, it can be someone looking at a Google doc and leaving you comments, right? What I mean when I say revision is like, you know, it needs to be a conversation, you know, a hard edit isn't a hard edit, it's a interest point, right? It's something you, for you to investigate um, further, and all of that investigation either through your writing process or through someone else's eyes is uh, done with the goal of excavating what the poem is meant to be right because I believe that every poem has a form that it must take Um, in a moment in time. And so if you are performing a poem, that poem might have a specific form for that stage. And that stage might change in the future, right? If you are submitting a poem to a book or putting it out into the world, that might be the form it takes in that moment. So how do you uncover what that form is over and over again more successfully and your success rate will increase the more you do it right the you will get better at revising the more you revise not just a single piece but revision as an act in general that you can learn from
0: yeah and even just even just certain forms of revision right like one of the things i always found so interesting about like speaking out your poetry and all that is it seems a lot like a lot more of an active form of um of experience with your poetry right I mean, before the whole pandemic hit and everything, we one of the things that our club loved to do was was sort of do what we call the telling of tales, right? So people would come up and write read their short stories or their poems and all that. In a way it's sort of a sort of a performance. But I think even too, when when I read my first story in there, like it definitely felt like a much like a much more illuminating experience, being like sort of exposing myself in that way to the community for the first time. So I kind of did want to ask, like, how did that feel when you were performing your poems for the first time?
1: Yeah, my first performance uh, was in 2014 in Charlottetown, actually. Um, And I had just spent the summer living on a reserve up in Treaty 8 territory, and I had spent it very isolated. And so I started writing out of that place of isolation as I sought comfort for myself and uh, kind of in that situation where I was physically extremely isolated from other people um, and emotionally isolated as I was uh, going through like a very bad breakup and so like from this place of like incredible vulnerability I started writing poetry and that's um, you know something that inspired the start of my poetry career and shortly after that I flew to charlatan for a big conference And they did kind of like a a sharing circle, you know, which at the time was, I didn't understand how radical it was to have like a big academic conference and have like a very vulnerable sharing circle in it. Um, And that came from the indigenous scholars who were there, right? This was something they initiated from their own practice. Um, So now in retrospect, I understand how monumental that is. But at the time I was just like, okay, I have one poem. I am gonna go share my one poem. And I went to the circle and that was the first time I read a poem out loud uh, in my life. And I was so overcome with emotion because I'm like a very emotional person that I I like cried near the end of that poem. And because I was crying and like I couldn't hold back these these things that I was talking about, other people in the audience were also crying, you know, and it was just like this very emotional experience And that poem, uh, that poem was called Coconut. And it was talking about love and being racialized. And coconut is like a a racial slur for uh, brown skinned people um, who are thought to be white on the inside. So now we're talking about lateral violence, right within the community. And all of these things were going on at once in this poem, there was talk about abuse and, you know, fetishization. And I didn't understand themes and stuff like that. I just wrote what was kind of bottled up inside of me. And it's interesting because I came back to Edmonton, I performed that poem again, um, and again was like, you know, brought to tears and also brought other people to tears, um, which I don't do all the time now. And it was because there was like this really raw emotion that was being conveyed. Um, And yeah, I feel like it's come really full circle because like my book coming out with New West Press is called Coconut. Um, that's gonna. That's the title of my book, and it doesn't have that poem in it because that poem is, you know, writing-wise, absolute trash. But it was like the the emotion that went into that performance that really sold that poem, I think, and allowed people to connect with it. I consider it a very amateur poem, to be honest.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I no, I get that. I get that feeling. But I, you have a special connection to the first poems. Even if we look at them, we're like, oh, you know, the best and all that. But I'm sure, I, I'm sure yours is amazing and all that. I haven't had a chance to read it. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure it's golden. Cool,
1: <laughs> yeah, it, like it's in some of my chapbooks, but yeah, that early draft of it, oh man, was it ever terrible.
0: Speaking of new work that's coming out, so your new, so I heard that you're coming up with a new chapbook called I See You, right? Uh, so. Yeah.
1: That one came out in 2019, Um, and I toured it. And so it is the collaboration chapbook with a trans poet out of Montreal named uh, by Curious George. And they they placed second at the Canadian Championship um, the year that I won. And so we formed a friendship then, and then we actually took that book on tour. And so we printed uh, a limited run of like 300 copies. Um, They have some copies, I think there's probably like 20 left uh, in the world, if anyone's interested, but the digital copies are available. And we did, um, I did about 15 to 20 shows in a six month period. Um, and Luca was able to join me. Uh, they also go by Luca. Luca was able to join me for about half of those performances. And so the chat book is half my work, half of their work, and it's currently in development for being um, taught at a, at a high school level. So I'm working with uh, a teacher and a designer now to make that book accessible to students.
0: That's awesome. Having your work re- reach out to the to the greater community, but.
1: It's a huge privilege and like I was touring even four weeks before the pandemic started before we went into lockdown. Mm-hmm. I performed like four or five days before we went into lockdown and it was oh, wow. my last show and I didn't even know it at the time before I went basically completely online. And so it, I was very privileged to be able to write a chat book, fund a chat book. I self-published that one. My other ones have been published uh, formally with uh, Glass Buffalo. And then take that to cities across Canada um, and that chapbook has also like individually gone out kind of all over the world there's people I've sold it to so that it's such a beautiful iteration of like how poetry reaches out to people um, you'll never make for most of us we will never make enough money to survive just by selling books because the margins are so low but the real benefit of selling books and giving them to people and having them out in the world is the ability to connect, right? That's more valuable, I think, than any sort of monetary gain you can get from it, because the gain is so low anyway. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely hard,
0: right? From at least from what I've I've experienced, right? Even just getting like even getting the first poems all that published and all that either a lot of it's unfortunate that a lot of a lot of publishing houses often can't afford to pay, to pay their writers, or at the, or it is a very low thing.
1: That's the one thing I hope that changes in the future, right? That's, yeah, it's um, what? it's a two way problem, right? Like you as writers, if you are asked ever what your rates are, or you know how much you would like to be paid, you have to advocate for a sum that is a livable wage right um at least and you advocating for yourself you might be told no most of the times I've been told yes when I've given a high rate or the rate that I think I deserve um, and you are changing the landscape for writers who will come after you right so if you guys are the first generation to be like we must be paid for journal entries for journal submissions for you know low for to increase um you know access to these opportunities, um to be paid for our time and stuff like that like you are the ones who are going to be at the forefront of changing that atmosphere for everyone else and that's incredibly important right um i did a lot of gigs for free in the first year of my career before i was told that i was actively harming the community that needed that money because i was you know undercutting the entire market by doing stuff for free You know, and as soon as organizers were finding out that, you know, they could hire me for free rather than pay 100 bucks to a poet who needed 100 bucks, they were hiring me instead. And so I very quickly stopped doing that. I accepted honorariums where I could. I created kind of a charity based model as well, whereas if someone does want me to work for free, They have to tell me up front. Right. Or I will consider it a donation of my time, you know, and it's okay; I'm totally fine with doing gigs for free. But I need to be told that that needs to be communicated, because, again, like under capitalism, our labor, our labor is hard fought and also like has a value put on it. Right. And for me to pay my bills and stuff like that, pay rent and all of that, like I need to value my labor at a rate that allows me to live.
0: Mm-hmm. oh absolutely absolutely so I've heard that you um, have started a publishing um house a moon jelly house so that's so that that just started up this year
1: yeah so it's been in the works with my partner since probably 2019 and we had planned to launch it in 2020 and finally we kind of like, We were like, you know what, we need to sit down and just do this, do this thing that we want to do, regardless of like a pandemic and stuff like that. And so we built up the website, we put out a call for submissions and our press, Moonjali House, we are focusing, and I hate the language, but we are focusing on BIPOC authors in small run publications. So what we are hoping is to take people who have been traditionally excluded from the chapbook publishing thing and elevate their voices to a place where they can use these chapbooks as merch or to give to their friends or something like that, like as low of a cost as possible. Unfortunately, at this point, even though I just talked about it, we're not paying for the acquisitions. We are paying people in chapbooks, right? And so people will get the equivalent of, you know, $200 or $300 in chapbooks and they can do whatever they want with it. They can use that as income. They can, like I said, give it away. That'll be up to them. But by focusing on like small runs, we're going to be able to publish a lot more authors. And right now it's being entirely funded from our own, from our own personal funds. And I find it's really important because, you know, as poet laureate, I was given an honorarium um, through my other jobs. Like I am in a place of financial stability where I'm able to do that. But I also think that like, It's interesting because by no means am I like making rich people dollars. It's still important for me to be able to provide these opportunities to other people because if I had had these opportunities or you know when I was starting out as a poet my career would look a lot different. I would have had access to more things early on so I want to be able to uplift voices as early in a career as possible as it makes sense for us because these people need it right investment into an early part of someone's career is going to have a tenfold impact right more so than investing in like you know a writer who's been around for 45 years and has already published like 10 successful books you know the first book the first chapbook, book like is way more important for an early career writer regardless of age emerging artist is an emerging artist you know than it would be for someone who's more established
0: yeah no i think that's i think that's awesome that you're doing that considering how white the publishing industry can get. Sometimes I think it's awesome that you guys have sort of given, at least given that opportunity for an alternative outlet for people to get get their work published, right?
1: It's interesting Um, because like, we had a lot of really great submissions. Um, We also have an editor on board as well, Catherine Abbas, who did do writing at the U of A um, and has been like traditionally published a lot. So that's been really interesting because Catherine brings the perspective of like, you know, what can we offer to these poets from that world that formal writing world um, my partner is getting a master's in english so also comes from like a formal writing experience but for me like this is something i'm still trying to pursue into the future but i haven't thus far right so we're bringing so many different world views into the process of like editing and producing these chapbooks and like we're hoping to fundraise for the production of them um probably in november and what's going to come out of that, I think, is really beautiful. So, like, if people could really keep an eye out for that, I think, like, these artists who we've picked, like, they're just phenomenal, you know, and, like, we get, we, like, we don't make money off of this venture, obviously. Maybe one day, many, many years in the future, I will make money off selling a book for once in my life, but for us right now, like, this is definitely a passion project because we, like, we want to support these authors. We love these authors. We wanted to publish two chat books a year. We actually are publishing eight because we just couldn't oh, wow. say no. Like we absolutely couldn't say no to some of the authors who submitted to our publishing house. So we're going to keep these opportunities open um, insofar as like my partner and I have money to fund chat books. We will continue to pr- produce chat books.
0: That's awesome. That's, that, that's really cool. Since we're kind of like getting close to the one hour here, I was Hoping maybe if anybody of you um, had any questions for Nisha, feel free to pop them in the chat. Go ahead, we'll get um, get Nisha to answer them and all that.
1: What is your favorite poem to perform and why? Uh, Bri, my favorite poem to perform now is uh, Fat Girl Tweets About Pussy, which is the one you saw. uh, (laughs) And it's my favorite, because I get to say pussy like 14, 50 times or whatever, like a million times in that poem. And it makes me feel great. So I love performing that poem. That poem offended someone so badly on tour that they sent me like a fatphobic, um, hateful message to my website, which I then then called them out for out loud at the gig because they sent it during my set. And so I had the organizers go up and like kick those people out of the crowd because I was like, this is hateful and I don't want to deal with this. That's quite
0: unfortunate though that you had such that... Somebody had had such a strong reaction to it. I always I always say too, if you don't like it, you, no one no one's forcing you to listen yeah. to it, right? So I
1: mean. it, was, uh, it was an exercise in in white fragility, I think. Yeah, <laughs> that's what we learned. Oh, Before yeah, a good poem. Yeah. Um, Yeah, like it was interesting judging the CBC Poetry Prize. Uh, It's such a big prize. And so I felt like there was a lot of weight behind it. And also judging submissions for the chapbook for the chapbooks in the press. A good poem for me is a poem that that conveys something I did not already know or that I want to know about the subject or the author and whether it does that effectively for me can be judged within like five seconds you know like three lines into a poem if i don't have an understanding of what this poem is doing i usually don't give it a second glance um when i'm buying a book of poetry from an author i don't like i like having the ability to flip to an open page and have any one of those poems be compelling right um maybe i just maybe that's not as kind as I should be. But I do think that like, if you write a book and every poem in that book can't do the work of being a good poem, then you shouldn't have put it in the book.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, I agree. All right. I I actually do have a question myself. What, what would you say is like the, one of the poems that you find you're the most proud of?
1: Most proud of? Um, yeah, it's, so this is like, pretty on the down low because I haven't really told a lot of people about it. But I'm 150 pages into my next book. And right now it is a medical memoir um, that is uh, mostly found material based on my own medical history and like experiences of care. And so this is something that I've really started to explore in my writing as someone who has suffered from a mental illness for like over half my life, um, and now also has like physical disability, and so I'm very proud of the work I'm doing. It's very vulnerable work. It's very hard, uh, hard work to look at records of stuff like being cop- hospitalized for being suicidal. Look at records of having you know stuff be stuff growing in my lungs and feeling like I was going to die. Right, and all of these things are incredibly traumatizing. But now I'm in a place of care where I get to do that work. And offer it, I think, to the world in a way that will give them insight into what it's like to live with disability. So it's a project I'm really proud of. It's something, like I said, no publisher has seen it. Um, I'm only starting to share it uh, now in very, very small doses. And It came out actually from Jordan Abel's poetry class. So if you guys are like in writing school, which some of you are, and you're able to take a poetry class with Jordan Abel, uh, this is what qualifies as a research creation or research, creative-based research and work. And you should definitely 100% take a class with him if you can, or if you can't read his books um, and buy them. Brie has another question. What has been your favorite place to perform? I don't want to sound like, like a yuppie or something like I don't want to sound super privileged but I am when I answer this but my favorite place to perform ever was during my first tour um I went to Europe um and It was like 2017, like before I became a full-time artist even. And I went on this like fuck it tour to Europe where I was like so fucked up mentally. And like I had been in the psych ward and I was like, I just, I need to get out of Edmonton. And so I went to Europe and I booked this tour by like Facebook messaging random poetry scenes. So I would Google like poetry Berlin and find a poetry scene. And then I would like harass the organizers to be like, can I feature? Here's my bio. Here's a sample. And it was like all of this like really hard leg legwork and I got a feature at Berlin Spoken Word and I went to this like really sketchy looking bar like many streets away from the main main streets of Berlin in like almost a residential neighborhood it was a smoking bar so like everyone in Europe smokes which is like totally gross it was a smoking bar Um, most of the crowd were incredibly drunk and they told me that I could do like a 15 to 20 minute set of poetry and so there I was I didn't memorize a lot of poems I had I had like sheets in my hand um, and it was the best feeling in the whole world like Just as soon as I started poetry, people were like, they were really listening, truly listening. There were no stage lights. The stage was like a stained carpet. We were in the basement. There were literal tree stumps that had been brought in as chairs. Um, It looked like it was like totally condemned. There was a blue guitar in the corner um, and a girl was like playing it. And I just I have never felt like so purposeful in the universe as I did at that moment in 2017 having like everyone be like you need to keep doing poetry in your life and I think about that moment because I feel like some people will go their whole lives looking for meaning you know looking for what the answer is for them and for me it was like being in that terrible bar and doing my poetry so early on and having this like huge sign from the universe that this is what I had to do with my life yeah which is like a very long answer and not necessarily what you were asking but (laughs) that's how it is Uh, Another question, how do you balance exposing your vulnerabilities in your art while caring for your mental health? I'm still figuring it out, honestly. I think uh, I teach workshops sometimes uh, around uh, trauma, how to talk about trauma, how to write trauma-based poetry. And what I can tell you is just that, like, if you cannot access care and exhibit care towards yourself in the same way you would exhibit care to someone else who is suffering from the same conditions as you are, Um, then you are not necessarily ready to talk about trauma. Um, But at the same time, sometimes talking about it is a form of healing. So really where the line is for you is super personal. And I can't tell you what that looks like. I can say that for, I can say though, if you are being re-traumatized when you are writing or when you are sharing that work, you are not caring for yourself and by re-traumatizing an audience or re traumatizing yourself, you are harming yourself and harming your practice more than you are helping it.
0: I, I definitely agree, especially since there's a lot of since there can be sometimes a lot of emotion involved with the writing process. And if you don't know, at least in my experience, how to keep those emotions in then sometimes sometimes it can be more of a harm than a mm-hmm. than than a healer, right?
1: So Yeah. One of the earliest things I was um I was taught by, I think my third therapist at the University of Alberta, was that like sometimes we do things that keep us safe in the moment that will allow us to be safe in the future, but not necessarily um, have like a clear connection, right? So like, if you're queer, and you're living at home, and you don't have the money to move out, and it would be harmful for you to come out, you are not obligated to come out, right? Those kinds of things are incredibly important. It's okay to do things that make you safe in the short term that aren't your ideal situation in the long term as long as you are centering yourself and your care in this instance. Okay, favorite anime or TV show? Favorite anime for many years was Sailor Moon, but now it's Yuri on Ice, uh, which, is, which is great because it's so gay um, and I love it. And my favorite TV show... <sighs> It's hard because, like, you look back at TV shows that you watch uh, now that you, like, enjoyed as a child and you're like, oh, that was, like, a racist trope or, like, that element was problematic. And, like, there were many years where I was, like, obsessed with The Office and now I, like, can't watch any of it because I find it so hard. But I really enjoyed uh, watching Avatar, which is also, I don't want to call it anime because it was, like, written by white people, but Avatar was really great and I find that, like, they've done a really good job about, like, having representation and like really giving people, giving people from like marginalized identities, some sort of voice uh, and some sort of like, paying, paying homage to them, yeah.
0: I kind of want to ask you a question myself, but do you prefer writing down poems in pen and paper or on the computer? I don't know this is kind of an a debate, somewhat of a debate in the writing community, but which one do you find is most effective for you?
1: It's it's tough because I don't write poems linearly, like I don't write a beginning, a middle and an end. Um, I write all over the place. And sometimes I write in fragments. And for a while, because I was traveling so much, I was writing on airplanes or in cars or in buses and stuff in notes apps and stuff like that. And so um, in workshops, I like writing on pen and paper. I hate writing on the computer in a workshop. I love being able to sit in a in a circle and be like, I'm going to write in this notebook and it's going to be really terrible handwriting and I'm going to do it really quickly. Um, I also write a lot in mind maps because I, I don't have a linear thought pattern when I write poems. And so being able to be like, this is an element, that is an element, this is an element, and then later put it together on like a computer. Um, the thing about doing it in a Word document is that you can just go up and down a document. So if you want to write the ending first, you can, and then you just go back to the beginning and you write the beginning. And so like, there's definitely an ease of doing it online. And now in this like new book that I'm writing, all of that is found material. So it's all digitized material already. So I literally can't do any of that writing on the page. I have to do it online in on my screen and in Photoshop and stuff like that. So it's mostly a matter of comfort, right? Um, one of the poems that Don Iverson really likes um, that I've done a few times for like city council is a poem I wrote lying down in a notes app in my old bedroom at home in my at my parents' house. Um, and I wrote it and I was like all cr- like cramped up like the doctor tells you not to do when you're going to bed. You know, sure. like you're not supposed to have your screen on like that in the dark, stressing your eyes out. And that's how I wrote it. And I wrote it in like 20 minutes because I was like late for a show. So I wrote it really quickly. And then I went to the show and performed it About one here, um, any awesome. Tips for writing a poetry book. Don't write poetry books, write poems. Um, and if they become books, that's great. If you're doing like project based work or thematic work, uh, focus on the on the individual unit, right? Like focus on the poem, what each poem needs to be. And later you can put it together and uh, having a Having a submission, most publishers for chapbooks will look for submissions uh, less than 40 pages. Um, Anything bigger than that becomes basically a full manuscript. And so I think now like 60 pages for poetry books is kind of considered the average start, like the bottom line of a manuscript. And that can go up to... You know, 200 pages. Many publishers will ask for between like 10,000 to 20,000 words. Honestly, some of your poems won't look like that. The word counts are total trash. It'll be mostly based on page count. So you're going to aim for between like maybe 60 and 100 when you're submitting your first manuscripts.
0: Leading up from that question of of creating a poetry book and all that, how do you feel is like the most effective way to like organize um, poems into a poetry book or so, like, yeah. do, you, do you tend to organize for them based sure. off of a um, um, of style or fee? Yeah,
1: the key is that word that you just said, organizing. Like, if you've been writing for a few years, um, I would highly suggest you go and find every poem you've ever written and put it all in like a word document and see what the themes are. See what what's coming up, right? And if you find that you've been writing about like the same three things over and over again, maybe that's your book, right? Or maybe one element of that is your book. Um, Keep track of everything that you write. Put it into portfolio. Later, when you're submitting it, you can, you know, you'll have easy access to it. Um, I keep a document that's basically gig poems now, um, which is like which poems do I want to perform, and I just pick out of them, right? Because it's already in like a in an area that I'm doing it. Which is funny because I haven't been doing that post getting my first manuscript finally sent off, like my first uh, book, which is now like it'll go to the printers probably in the next um, six months. So I finally did the final edits to that draft, and after I did that, I was like, "I need a fucking break from working on a book." And so I stopped cataloging—that's the word for it. I stopped cataloging for like four months, and now I have to go back and re-reorganize like four months of work that I that I did over over the summer and stuff. Okay, we got another question from John. How do you avoid burnout? I don't. I just I just burn out constantly, <laughs> and then I end up in the ER. Uh, which is I'm so sorry I can't tell you anything else Um, I started doing this new thing um, and it lasted like two weeks where I tried to take the weekends off um, and I just ended up after two weeks I was like I'm so bored I'm gonna work through the weekends again Um, right before I got made poet laureate and before I won the championship I was working four jobs just to make ends meet um, and performing like I think that year I performed like 40 times or something I was so burnt out mentally all the time I was tired literally everyone would be like how are you doing and I'd be like I am tired I would like eat in my car between gigs during National Poetry Month I had like eight gigs in one week so I had two in one day at one point really really tiring stuff I would say like now as someone who is living with a partner who um, has to cook everything myself and like keep a house clean, which I don't, um, it's very important to center my comfort and my care. And now, especially, uh, with physical, uh, physical disability, um, if my physical body is not in the shape to write a poem, then I don't write the poem. Right. So now, now I have to make sure I do things like eat and check my blood sugar and, you know, I'm not feeling faint and um, mentally I'm not anxious and that my mood, my mood uh, stabilizing drugs are working, that I'm taking them on time. And that's why I'm writing a book about it because managing my health is central to my success as a poet, but it has taken me over a decade to be able to reach that point and I'm still burning out all the time.
0: It's a difficult balance between work and life. I often often to find too, but yeah, no, burnout. It's, I feel like it's one of those issues that, that comes with people with mental, like who um, yeah, who have struggles and, and also who
1: yeah. you know, I are working
0: excessively. I, I feel like that's something like we try to ignore, which really bothers me.
1: Yeah, I think it's helped that like I bought a Nintendo Switch like a year ago, um, and I was like, I'm gonna play games. And then I came down with like a three month, very severe case of pneumonia, and I put in like you know a hundred hours into Pokemon. And I was like, instead of just like resting, I totally hyper fixated on something else that wasn't work that also led to burnout. I had like literally like gamer burnout, and I was like, I'm so tired now, <laughs> like you know. And so I had to invest in like actual rest. You know, Mm -hmm. and my partner and I are both workaholics and we have our office in our living room and we sit there and we do this like really terrible game of brinksmanship sometimes where we'll see, we'll go to bed when the other person goes to bed and both of us will keep working until someone gives in and goes to bed. And it's just like totally unsustainable, really terrible. Um, And we're finally like having these really hard conversations with each other being like, we don't have to say yes to every piece of work that comes our way. You know, we can turn down contracts for a $100 gig or a $1,000 gig because we have enough resources now to not have to work our way through survival.
0: I feel like, at least with myself, that's that a lot of that is like in like if the embedded like influence of capitalism saying that we need like our job in yeah. order to be successful is to be constantly working. And if we're not, yeah. I mean, I, at least with myself, if I feel like I'm like, even if I'm just resting in the evenings, I oftentimes just feel guilt. If I'm not working, I'm like, oh, I should be working. Shouldn't I? I'm a bad person now.
1: Yeah, and it's like, I think it's really important that like, especially under capitalism, you find out what it is that makes you the most happy. And some of us like work. Some of us like what we produce. Some of us like writing and painting and all of that. It's still work. Um, And that you dedicate resources to that thing you like best. And if the thing you like best is watching TV, then you need to make time to be able to do that, right? If the thing you like best is, um, you know, watching sports or participating in things, it's okay if those things aren't your job. You don't have to commercialize every single one of your hobbies like I've done, right? By making writing a career, I turned the thing that I used to turn to from stress into the new stressful thing, right? And I don't think I would recommend it for everyone. But at the same time, it's like my happy hours are that moment on stage, the 10 minutes I'm on stage or the 15 minutes I'm on stage and my unhappy hours are everything beyond that. So like I feel like a cocaine addict, you know, like I'm going for this like very small period where I'm like totally in like a purely happy state of like adrenaline and then everything else kind of works towards how can I continue to do that in a way that makes other people happy as well. Yeah,
0: yeah but making other people happy that's the thing is not make you happy but I mean it seems it seems like you've definitely gotten a nice balance but like because obviously you've amalgamated amalgamated a very a very nice audience for yourself and all that which I very much which I very much admire <laughs> but um but yeah so do you, I guess that leads me into another question I have do you find that you sometimes come in conflict personally and between your the expectations of what sort of your audience or your sort of platform has sort of established itself as, and like what you are sort of seeking at the moment.
1: Yeah, for sure, um, it's really interesting. Um, back in like 2016, I gave a TEDx talk, and there were some really hateful comments when it went up on YouTube, and people were just like, "You're so privileged. You live in a country like Canada that gives immigrants tons of privilege." Like. You're lucky that you speak English, like you're lucky that white people colonized India, and that we gave you language that now you can like do jobs and like earn a living. And I was like, that is so fucked up on so many levels. And that kind of stuff happens, right? There's people who really hate some of my work, people who don't support it. And that's fine, you know, Um, obviously it's not fine emotionally because I'm like a really fragile person, but you have to develop a tolerance for it because the bigger your platform is, the higher the chance that someone's not gonna like your work, but the people who do like it are gonna outnumber the people who don't. But the most important person who has to like it is you. And so even if the audience who likes it is you, within reason, like you're not actively harming people, you're not being, you know, you're not appropriating and stuff like that then that's okay if the audience is one. And anything after that one is definitely a benefit.
0: That's some great advice, I think. What were the what were the sort of poems that you felt were personally the most difficult either like emotionally or or technically to write for yourself?
1: I think one of the hardest poems I ever wrote was on something very controversial. And I wrote it three weeks before Edmonton Pride was cancelled and that was really important because Pride was cancelled over a conflict between the racialized community of queers and white queers uh, being in control of resources and so and really having again white fragility and I wrote this poem called uh, White Queer Opens a GoFundMe. And the premise of that poem, which is not based in personal history for once, the premise of that poem is the uh, the contrast between a white queer who experiences privilege, you know, a POC queer in India, like a woman, a female uh, queer person in India, who is demonized and eventually uh, commits suicide um, because of her queerness and because of, like, laws against homosexuality in India. And so that poem was incredibly vulnerable for me because, again, like, White queers had been very kind to me in some ways, and many of them had had behaviors that reflected white supremacy, but they weren't, you know, people who actively hated because they had also been discriminated against. You know, you could have intersections of oppression and privilege. And so they were also oppressed as queer people who had been demonized in certain ways or had had struggle. But at the same time, they were sometimes inflicting that same oppression onto queer people of color. Right. And there was almost this like expectation in the white queer community that queer people of color do a certain amount of labor or have to prove their queerness in a different way or that they're not as important because they haven't come out to their family. You know, and there was all this like lateral violence within the queer community and especially the queer art community where like, oh, like, you know, if you didn't present in a certain way about your queerness, you weren't considered part of the queer community. And so I wanted to talk about that. And it was very difficult to bring it up. And I wrote this poem being like, people are really going to hate me for it, especially other white queers, you know, in the community. And I, I ended up posting that poem, and I just actually produced it in a broadside. So like in a poster form that I'm mailing out to some people who have bought it now. And it was very, very tough for me to post that poem publicly, to call out the privilege that some of these people had. But again, like, you have to think critically about these things you know and if if you are a person in a in a position of oppression you may also have like some privilege right like for me as a settler i have incredible privilege over indigenous peoples in canada right and the way that settler immigrants and their children have been treated in some ways versus actual indigenous people who come up in society now right and the way that like White society has valued a good immigrant's labor, but not the work of an Indigenous person um, and what they've contributed in being able to in, in giving up their land to settlers. And so, like, there's privilege there, too. Um, my privilege also when it comes to stuff like wealth, like my family was, you know, middle class and we had a lot of kids, but we we, we were never starving or wanting for resources. And compared to, you know, other people in my life, we were we were we were wealthy. And, you know, what does that mean, especially now for me as like a, as a struggling artist where, you know, there was the first year in art, where I went full time, I made $12,000. And if I hadn't been living at home, that wouldn't have even covered rent. And for but for some people $12,000 is a lot of money, you know, so there's a ton of privilege that comes with that. That's why we that's why I do things like start Moon Jelly House, right, where I can share the wealth, redistribute it and share the resources.
0: That's really cool. Yeah, no I no I definitely admire the fact that you've taken the time taking that time to to get moon jelly house out there, right? Isn't it that, like a lot of those smaller a lot of the smaller um poets that might not have the the resources to get their names out there. They have more of that opportunity with with you guys at least I mean that's another it's yeah. another another way they can do that.
1: Yeah, and it's also um many of our poets are spoken word poets who They don't understand publishing because they've never considered how important it is for some of their careers. And so some of the process of working with them has been this like introduction to publishing work. And for those of you who have access to class and instructors and things like physical form and you understand it because you've read a lot of these authors many spoken word artists that we've worked with have struggled to understand even what a poem should be shaped like and what a poem looks like. So it's not just that we are taking poets and publishing them. It's that we are also acting as mentors and as guides for them in their poetic careers. Who's your favorite (laughs) Animal Crossing villager? Okay, I worked really hard on creating my ideal village. I'm talking like 350 hours into this game the night it came out i stayed up till 6am building everything and it was like it was so hard i got really into the trading economy like super deep into the, the 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 nook mile ticket trading economy on animal crossing and i was like trading on discord and staying up late uh kicking villagers out to make like ideal islands building houses uh like big spreads for them so the, these are my villagers this is, this is who I ended up with as my ideal list, And my favorite is Judy, who you can see right there. Um, and, like, she's a total bitch, but, like, she's so cute. Um, and you can only get her from, you can scan some villagers in through, like, amiibo cards, which are, like, something that Nintendo sold many years ago. And so you can like buy your favorite villager and it's legal to put into the game that way. But this villager is exclusive uh, to this version of the game. And so there's no way to just like buy a villager. And it was like so tiring. Oh, my God. I don't even want it. (laughs) It It's been a really (laughs) long time. And then I finally found her on it, like in the game. And I kept her on my island. And now I just give her things and I love her. So, yeah going into 2021, and I haven't uh, signed the contract yet for sure, but I will most likely like 90%, uh, 90% be going on to work as a writer in residence for the EPL um, through the region. So Sherwood Park, Strathcona, uh, Strathcona County, uh, St. Albert and Edmonton, and Through that, I'll have open office hours. So if later on, you guys want to workshop your writing, you will be able to access those services for free. So usually I charge like editing services, but you'll be able to do that for free and it'll be it'll just be a free service available to you as like people who live here. Another question, how do you explore different themes in your writing. That was a really tough one because at first I always wrote about the same thing, racism, over and over again. I wrote about racism all the time, um, and I still do because, you know, it's fucked up. And getting into different themes for me was an act of forgiveness, like to be able to say, like, you are allowed to write about other things. It was mostly allowing myself the time and the space to write about something new. And so I followed I kind of just followed the trail of like, what are the things that are important to me? What are my values? And how do I write about those things? And now, like, as someone who writes a lot of commissions, like gets paid to write about something that someone else talks about, I have to find my own thread in that story. And so I did a poem about drug addiction for a recovery center, for instance, for uh, women with addiction. And I wrote about like, the time that I was addicted to like, to really harmful substances, um, but another commission I did was for a dental clinic where they wanted me to write a commercial about a community um, that they were located in, and I was like, I didn't even live in that community, and so I went and I physically like walked through that community, and I found a, a sense of self within that community, um, brief enough, briefly, but enough for me to write this poem, and they ended up like putting it out on Facebook and it's still like out there. And it was like this really beautiful piece about how beautiful that community was, um, even from the outside. And so for me to explore different themes, like it just has to come from a place of kindness. You know, if you're queer or uh, Muslim or coming or Asian, like coming from a different marginalization, you don't have to talk about anything in particular, right? Like you don't have to write a gay poem if you're gay. You don't have to write about... You don't have to write about your skin color. You don't have to do these things that other people in your diaspora might tell you you have to do or your community might tell you you have to do. Your poems come from that marginalization because they're a part of you, right? Like, my book is still a book of queer poetry because I am queer and I wrote it. You know, I don't have to write a gay poem. It can be a poem about love. It can be a poem about, you know... Anything I want it to be, it can still have poems about stuff like going down on a girl, which this book definitely has. But like, it's you know, it doesn't have to be these things. It's who you are that's important. Another question. Portfolio. One of the first grants I ever got as an artist was to write my first manuscript, and they gave me five thousand dollars to pay my bills, essentially, so that I could take time off to write. And during that time, I built up the bulk of my portfolio that became my book that's coming out. And so building that portfolio was an act of practice. And so committing yourself to a writing practice was very essential. So being like, I'm going to sit down and try to write a poem every day. Obviously, there was like a ton of problematic stuff that came with that because I personally, with my mental health, couldn't write every day. But instead, what I was doing was I was writing consistently and I was committing to the practice of writing. So to build up a poetry portfolio, you do have to, one, read a lot of poetry, make it part of your practice to read a lot of poetry, and also, two, commit to the time to write for it. And so you can do things like free writes. You can do things like ink sheds. Um, Your goal can be that you are going to try to write for five minutes of every day or every week. And you have to set, like, attainable smart goals, right? and forgive yourself if you don't get them. And after that year off, uh where I made like that that $12,000, I had the backbone of my next two years of performances because I had all of these poems that I used in my book and in journal submissions, in my chapbooks, um and like I said it became like the bulk of my manuscript.
0: Oh, yes. Thank you so much for coming, Nisha. We we thought it was really awesome to get to listen to you and Good luck on the rest of your um, rest of your creative endeavors, and we we hope the best for you. Hopefully, we'll hopefully get to hear from you in, in the your futures. So. No problem. All right. Take care.